And one of the things you do when you're a student here trying to figure out what it means to go into this pastoral thing is you go and spend a summer doing an internship in a church. So I went and returned back home and my church where I'd grown up was still crazy enough to let me intern with them. And so they did. And so I did. And so the first, the first week that I'm there, I'm at the midweek gathering of the teens. And I'd done some things with teens in other places and all the rest, so we decided this would be a good fit. I'd spend some time with them. But since I newly arrived, I'm not doing anything. I'm just watching. I'm just sort of there that day, get to know people and so on. So the leader gets up and talks about the passage that is our Old Testament passage this morning. The passage where Abraham is told to go and sacrifice Isaac. And sort of opens this up for discussion. And the first thing that happens, boom, right out the door, is this one guy says, good heavens, what was it like to be Isaac? And we're all just sort of wiped out. And I'm thinking, I'm glad I'm not leading today. Like, jump in the deep end. Like, what do you say to that? What was it like to be Isaac? So, friends, this summer, we've been in some of these, some of these really kind of wild stories in the Old Testament. We've been looking at places in the Old Testament where we're told that someone is in some kind of a change situation. Maybe it's a good one. Maybe it's a hard one. Maybe they don't know. But in that situation, there comes a time where they're not sure what to do, and they lift up their eyes. And when they lift up their eyes, they see. And what they see turns out to be the crucial thing. And somehow or another, some of these stories are pretty different from each other, but somehow or another, God works in that moment. And somehow or other, God shows up when their eyes are lifted up out of their immediate, ooh, wow, what do I do with this context? And then the story moves and things change. Last week, we were with Abraham. And last week, we saw the intimacy that had developed over time as Abraham had had all the many, you know, wild things that had happened to him in his life. He developed this intimacy with the Lord. This story today, oddly enough, ironically, is actually a continuation of the incredible intimacy between Abraham and the Lord. There's a lot of irony going on here. If we could go back in a time machine, if we could go back in a time machine to the ancient Near East, the the world and the time in which Abraham lived, what this story would say to us would not be what that blessed teen guy that day was worrying about. It would not be that the living God who we worship is really just as arbitrary, just as angry, just as volatile, and just as cruel as all the pagan gods of all the pantheons that have ever been made up. The point of this story, in part, would actually be that, no, the living God doesn't do that. It was expected in the ancient Near East that child sacrifice would happen. It was expected, it was even built into the liturgy of the Canaanite peoples, the peoples in the area where Abraham was. In their liturgies, this is awful, it's true though, in their liturgies they had these kind of chimeneas and they would actually do infant sacrifice. And in that point of the liturgy, it was built into the liturgy that they would all 
you know, yell out together to cover the, the horrible sound of that. What you do in a liturgy, friends, a time that is set apart, where there's a force, it matters deeply in our soul, I mean, because we are choosing to participate in this intentional space. And this was a part of Canaanite worship. This was a part of the world as they understood it. Now, there's a sense in which all the made-up gods require child sacrifice in various ways, in various forms. They have to, if you will, in order to justify that they really are so great. Now, this sounds crazy to us. We kind of do it too. We just do it in much more subtle ways, right? Children, young girls, sexualized early to fit into being cool, being beautiful, being the way that the God of beauty that we have warped it into wants to be. Young children having their timelessness taken away, being immediately shoved into being scheduled and worked and having to hit the meritocratic trail. And if I don't get into this preschool, I won't get into that elementary. And if I don't get into that elementary, I won't get into that middle. If I don't get into that middle, I won't get into that high school, I won't get into that college, I won't get into that grad school, I'll never get in that firm. There are people who actually schedule their pregnancies in order to make sure that their kid is the you know older in the class so that they will have the best chance from the get-go to be at the top of the meritocratic thing. We too sacrifice our children. The made-up gods require the sacrifice of children to justify themselves. The living God doesn't because the living God lives. He is. He's self-existent. He gives life because he can. When we find in the Old Testament, rule of thumb, when we find in the Old Testament a story that is scarily weird and where it seems like our God is no different from the horrible pagan gods, pay extra attention. Don't run away. Pay attention. Because somewhere in the story, it's going to flip and it's going to change. And we're going to see that what it's really telling us is that our God is different. And our God is unique. And our God is worthy of worship. So Abraham goes out. And the big question for me has always been, what is in Abraham's mind? I appreciate the teen guy who said, oh my word, what was it like to be Isaac? I, I, I appreciate that. We'll work our way back to that in the end. But I've always wondered, like, what was it like to be Abraham? Good heavens. What was it like to be Abraham? What is he thinking? Is Abraham just sort of like flat out, you know, deer in the headlights panicked? Is he just kind of like in drudgery going through the thing he's been told to do and, and just sort of, you know, mechanically like a robot? Doom, doom, doom. Or is there something in the back of his heart and mind? Is there something in the back of his heart and mind that says, I don't know, somehow this is going to work out? I want to say the latter. There are three reasons I want to say the latter. And actually saying the latter is a, is a little different than a lot of the way these stories work. These, these stories that are way back in the ancient Near East, in the, in the early primeval mists and in the sparse and you know, hard world that that was. But I want to say for three reasons, I think this is a place where Abraham's thinking, somehow or other, this is going to work out. The first reason is this. The language in Hebrew, when God tells him to get up and go, is exactly the same little phrase, not long, the same little phrase 
way back in chapter 12, when Abram is, Abraham is still Abram, and when Abram's whole adventure begins, the Lord says to him, get up and go, same words, leave the security of your tribe and go off on this thing. And Abram, lo and behold, he does this, this crazy thing where he believes that there is only one God and that God lives and that God speaks and that God cares and that God holds all of history. Abram believes all this stuff and he acts on it and God shows up and shows up again and shows up again and shows up again. And the language is the same. So somewhere in Abram's mind, he's saying, okay, I've heard this before. Somewhere in the back of Abram's mind, he's going, okay, somehow this will work out. God's going to show up. The second reason is the love that he has for Isaac. These narratives way back here in the Old Testament, they're sparse. They are not postmodern writing. They don't tell us how people feel. They don't get us into their head. They don't give us motives and all the rest. They just tell it like it happened. And you don't get a lot of detail. This narrative slows down. And it gets surprisingly tender. Can't you feel it? Can't you feel the relationship that Abraham has with Isaac? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Take your son, your only son whom you love. But then we're told that Abraham does this. But then we get a little interjection or, or a change in the story. On the third day as they travel, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. He said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the word of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went both together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. Beautiful tenderness in this crazy moment. Now, there's three prophetic interjections that butt their way into the story right here. The first one is it's the third day. Now, Abram doesn't know what that is about, really, but it's the third day. We look at that, and any third day, we go, oh, right. This is a prophetic hint that the boy will live, the resurrection of three days. Abram lifts up his eyes. The first time he lifts up his eyes, he's still able to see. He's able to get beyond just this immediate horrible thing that's clamped down on him. God's going to show up. It's a little clue. God's going to show up. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, the cross prefigured. There's this prophetic interjection that God is in this, that something's going to happen. And then the third reason why I think we can believe that Abraham, against all hope, believed that God would show up and work this out somehow is an utterly unique moment in the entirety of the Old Testament. And it works like this. He took in his hand the, hand the fire and the knife. They both of them went together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. This is a little phrase, Hanani in the Hebrew. It's 25 times it shows up in the Old Testament. It, it happens. It, every time it happens except for two exceptions. It is when the lesser addresses the higher. When someone addresses God, God calls, and what do you say when God calls? You say, here I am. I am at your disposal. I serve you. 
when the master, the Lord of the house, calls the servant, what does the servant say? Here I am. I am at your disposal. I serve you. Every time it occurs, this is Moses at the burning bush. Here I am. This is Samuel when the Lord calls him as a boy. Here I am. This is Isaiah when he has the vision of the Lord on the throne. Here I am. Send me. I serve you. There are only two exceptions to this rule that is always said by the lower to the higher. Those exceptions are this one, where somehow or other, crazily in this moment, Abraham is walking up this way with the fire and the knife and the wood laid on his son, and his son, in this incredibly tender moment for these passages, looks up and says, my father. And he says back to him, here I am. Jesus tells us that Abraham looked and saw his day and rejoiced. Is this that moment? Is this that moment that Abraham was willing then to serve his son? Did Abraham somehow beyond all sensibility, see the Lord in his son. See the day when God would send his own son and give himself as the ultimate sacrifice. Did Abraham somehow get the hint that his son was standing in for that? It seems, it seems wild, doesn't it? It seems so much, but here's something. The Septuagint, the Septuagint is the ancient translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. It's the, it's the Bible of Jesus' day, if you will. Most of the New Testament authors, when they quote the Old Testament, they normally quote the Septuagint because they're going Greek to Greek. The Septuagint always translates the Hanani as Eduemi, which means, behold, here I am. Except right here. Right here, the Septuagint, to my great disappointment, because I do Greek more easily than I do Hebrew, which I really don't do well at all, I like the Septuagint, and they blew it right here. There's something about this one, because this is literally the same phrase and a context that works for it as well. And somehow they blew it. There's something about this one that's just too disturbing for those translators gathered together. There's something about this that's just too unusual. Abraham saying to his son, I serve you? It can't be. It just can't be. So they change it up. But it is. Hanani, I serve you. Abraham saw my day and was glad. Somehow Abraham knows that something is going to happen. The other exception, the other exception when Hanani is the higher serving the lower, is in Isaiah. And there are three times in Isaiah. So call it three exceptions. I'm calling it one big chunk of exception. And every single one of them are predictions of the Messiah and God's desire to take it on himself to serve and love and redeem. The first one comes in Isaiah 52. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know it is I who speak. Here I am. And that is in that context at the end of 52 that leads right up into 53. And 53 is the messianic suffering servant passage that Jesus self-identifies with more than any other passage in the Old Testament. He walks that walk and applies that and purposefully walks his way 
into Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond any human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations with his blood. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Abraham walking with Isaac and the cross prefigured. And God saying, no, I don't ask you to sacrifice your children. I ask you to love them and to serve them. And I give life. I give life. That's what I give. Isaiah 58. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. Isaiah 65, a lament of God that his people will not take him up on his self-giving love for them. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So Abraham says, honestly, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. The man of faith, Paul says. They go up to the hill, but... God, you know, I don't know about in your life, in my life, God's got a a much greater threshold for terror than I do, and he always waits for that absolute last moment. He is going to keep his timing. There's one thing he will not share. So you get right up to the moment, Abraham, something speaks to him, something nudges him, something even subconsciously, he looks up, he lifts his eyes again. Do you know how that works? Do you know how you're busy and you're frustrated and you can't figure something out and it's driving you crazy and you're panicked and you're heavy and then you realize that there's a voice trying to talk to you? You got to stop. Take that breath. Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Let him speak. Whatever it is, that's the Spirit of God trying to get to you, trying to comfort you, trying to give you peace in that moment. That happens this moment. Abraham lifts up his eyes, and behind him was a ram. Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son, and he got his son back. The friend, the hinge, friends, of the whole story is the cross of Jesus Christ, on which all hope swings, in which the love of God is made clear in its full cost. And the character of God is vindicated. That is the character of God. So what about that young guy that evening reacting to the story? No surprise, many of you figured this bit out already. I found out later he had some really tough stuff going on at home. Naturally, this story was difficult for him to hear. It triggered all that. He needed someone at home to be saying to him, here I am. I see you. 
I love you. I care about you. But the irony, again, is that what this story tells us is, yes, the world is that messed up. God is drawing near to the ancient Near Eastern world, which was a brutal world in which might makes right, in which there was no one out there to exact justice, to keep things in order. God is getting into that world in order to say, that is not me. It is not the way I would have humans order their lives. But to say, yes, it is that messed up. And what we need, friends, is not help. What we need is not good advice. What we need is not to try harder. It's not even new insights. What we flat out need is new life. We need newness. We need a blood transfusion from the blood of Jesus that has life in itself. And we need to be made new to recognize the gift that one has died and given himself for us because the need is that extreme. And he said, we heard him in his gospel, our last lesson this morning, unless we lay down ourselves and let his life displace our life, it won't be enough. He's not being mean. He's just explaining reality. He just wants us to have life, so he's telling us what is required to get life inside. God's response is equal to the depth of the mess. Let's pray, friends. Just encourage you to lift up your eyes in your own heart, in your mind, as you sit with the Lord, whatever you bring today, whatever's closed in around you and the horizon you feel like you can't see past I encourage you to take a moment and lift up your eyes when your soul can breathe a little bit just say to the Lord here I am take a breath say here I am And then take the big leap. Can you hear the Lord say to you, here I am. 